Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. We're back down in Miami, Florida on this episode to visit Ricardo Paljosa, a writer, professor, art critic, and most importantly for this second interview back by the woodpile, a poet and art collector. So we're going to get some commentary about a few of the pieces that Paljosa owns, hear a few bits of his poetry in addition to talking about the apparent default political persuasion of most artists and why that is. And if you want some visuals of some of the art we're chatting about today, check out our blog where I'll have a few representations up. I had started this talk by asking Ricardo to read the poem he wanted read at his funeral. This is uh, called The Sons-in-Law, Sodom, based on Genesis 19.14. The angels tell, you know... A lot. Right. Who else here is in the city? We're going to blow it up. Who else do you need to, you know, get out of here? Well, my two daughters have fiancés and maybe, okay, go and talk to them. And Lot goes and they go, what, what are you talking about? You know, blow up the city. You're nuts? No, we're, you know, Sodom's going to be here forever. I have a line in another poem of mine that has been quoted more than once by other people. And uh, it says that no one should outlive his own country or his nation. As I have, I have outlived my nation, my nation of birth. And so this kind of picks up on that same motif. What makes you think, old man, a place that rose before my memory could die in our time? We've been besieged and taken once or twice, yet shook off those histories to tell of them and maybe jot a lesson here and there. We've seen the desert, but never without our spire's imprint or the shrouding wall. Look, see, flesh quivering on my arm, and my muscles curl. Would you dream men could outrun marble and word? And if they could, they'd be condemned to ponder lost belonging from a foreign place. Who would wish to bury one's only land? We will stay in the shadows that know us, made us men and will surely mourn us. Sodom ends each time we die. You may be getting tired of answering this question, but stereotypically or generally, it is perceived that artists of all type, whether they be in the aesthetic arts or music or writers, you know, they tend to either romanticize or be attracted to authoritarianism. So you look at like Farida, who I think one of her last self-portraits was her and Stalin, you know, and you think about Ezra Pound, who was obsessed with Mussolini and Hitler, and you think of um, oh, Pablo Picasso, who gave a large part of his wealth to the French Communist Party. Psychologically, What's going on there? And I also want to talk about how they discriminated against Cuban artists who understood the failure of authoritarianism. I think what happened was that in, in Europe, which set the tone still for a lot of attitudes, 
Reality changes, but attitudes don't. Typically, attitudes are the last thing to change. A system can collapse. What better example than the fascination with, with royalty and, and all that nonsense? Yes. There isn't a, a monarch on the face of the world, well, maybe one or two left, you know, yeah. Saudi Arabia or you know, Jordan or maybe Thailand or God knows where, I don't know. But there's, there's only a handful of, of functioning of, you know, autocrats right. left on the planet and none in any major power. But even in America, there's enough people still obsessed with the, the royal family of England, and I don't understand Or even American royalty, the Kennedy right, right. or the whatever. You know, there's that fascination. Nobody wants to live under an aristocratic or monarchical system, but there's still that glamour and there's still that thing. So attitudes are the last thing to change. Like for an attitude to change, we might understand that, you know, uh, racism is evil and we know all the results of it from slavery and so forth and, and discrimination and you know no rational person would endorse it. Nonetheless, at, racist attitudes linger and prevail in, in culture you know, on all sides. So that's the last thing that gets tossed. And it's an ongoing process, and it's, it's one that obviously merits, you know. But, but getting back to this other thing, yeah. what happened in Europe was that the artists, during the 19th century, during the rise of the great industrial wealth of Europe and the expansion of Europe and the colonial empires and all that, the bourgeoisie became gigantically powerful. They assumed the, the, the role of the new patrons. But they also had these... You know, fuddy-duddy, many of them, not all of them, but many of them had these, you know, fuddy-duddy attitudes and, you know, they want this kind of realism and this kind of thing and it's got to look like Leonardo and it's got to, you know. But other artists were fighting that and there were wealthy patrons of those artists who supported them. So there was struggle within more advanced and progressive uh, people with money. Uh, think of the, the great Russian collectors who were the first, among the first to buy Picassos and Matisses and so forth and take them to Russia, and barns here in the United States, other people who would go, and, 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 you know, and Europeans there too. So there was always a dissident group within that, but generally these bourgeois values prevailed. Then, of course, then we had World War I. And it was that, that bourgeois nationalist mentality, the, you know, the, these little countries, you know, the, um, some American states are bigger than most of them, many of these countries, all fighting with each other over who's better and who's, you know, that led to the catastrophe of World War I and the destruction of European culture, the emasculation of European culture. The trenches, the, the insanity of that war is, is still something we can't even get our heads around. We just finished, you know, sitting, commemorating the 100th anniversary of this debacle. That's nothing in history. And, yeah, there's still fields in France you can't plow or, or do anything with. Their mind will blow over them. Right, or it's, or it's just contaminated with mustard gas still. So you have these, this, this war, the insanity of that war shook European culture to its foundations, and a lot of artists were looking for a radical transformation of European culture, because they realized at this point that the bourgeois values weren't just simply a pain in the ass, you know, <laughs> yeah. and they were like thwarting creativity, not all, but, you know, there was also creativity, people did manage to rise, look at European culture of the 19th and 20th centuries, probably the most brilliant ever on the planet, period. But nonetheless, there was great difficulty in artists making a living, writers, you know, whatever. So... Then the war, and it became like the absolute emergency. We've got to chuck this system. And what do they turn to? Well, they turn to these radical, revolutionary, totalitarian models. Uh, uh, the communists and the fascists seem to be offering the, the, the way out of this 
disaster that we just went through. So if you've just been through World War One and this catastrophe, and you're you know you've been horrified by what you know, the tens of millions that died, and you know, or you, you know, obviously you're going to be drawn to the siren song of the systems that that are promising. We're going to not just never have that kind of war again, but we're going to destroy the, the kind of system and values that made it possible to begin with. So that, that makes created this new religion, mm-hmm. this new religion of Marxism, especially Marx, became the new religious phenomenon. And then those who weren't terribly convinced of you know, with Marx then turned, obviously, to the fascists and so forth. So the result was this radicalization of, of the artists became a new attitude. After a while, it wasn't just the artists or the, uh, you know, the advanced thinkers and they see that we have to change all these values, not just you know, the governments and sign treaties and peripheral things like that, but really get to the core of the problem. The surrealists wanted art to be a battering ram you know, to, to compel people to have this like, psychological catharsis so that they would you know, reach into their own inner consciousness and come up with a new they, way. They of, become woke. Right. Become, <laughs> yeah. And it turned just into just one more style that got marketed like all the others. But nonetheless, at that time, they were thinking that they were the, the bomb throwers, if you will. And they were, that was this idea, this new attitude that the artist was at the avant-garde. That's what, in fact, avant-garde is a military term, right? The advanced guard. Right. Very good. Yeah. So the that 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 is not a, a coincidence. They really thought they were like the new guerrillas, the new warriors of the future. Right. That becomes then an attitude that that filters down to an attitude. So now we have fast forward to our current lovely day and age, where if you're a poet or an artist or a musician, well, you're supposed to be a leftist because it's like you know what you're supposed to do. You know, it wouldn't occur to anybody. To be a poet and 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 and, and vote Republican, or be a uh, a composer and 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 think in these other terms, conservative terms or non-leftist terms. So even if you flee from a Marxist regime, you still, as an artist, you see these people dressing up, playing the part because it's part of the what is expected of them in their milieu. I mean, they've got enough trouble, thank you, uh, making a living, selling their work, getting published, doing whatever, to on top of that, have everybody in their clique, in their profession, say, hey, why, you know, what are you doing being on the wrong side of this? It's just, it's shocking. When people, when my colleagues ask me, you know, where I stand on this or that, they're shocked. You would think I was advancing advanced cannibalism as a way of, uh, of, of feeding the masses. Not know? even just you know, mid-range cannibalism. No, advanced, advanced cannibalism. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you would think <laughs> I, was, I was advancing you know, the most heinous thing in the world. And I'm going, it, it is surreal, to, especially to Americans, especially Americans. Europeans are more savvy, and even Latin Americans. But to the typical American academic, intellectual that you know, muddles around like, you know, I think of them like aquarium fish. They live in these little aquariums, and they're, you know, they're in a little reef, and they think they're in the ocean. Mm-hmm. They're not. There are no sharks there. There's no more eel going to come and bite them uh, and eat them. They live in these rarefied little aquaria that, that, where they function, that somebody feeds them, you know, at, at predictable times, and uh, that's it. Has this hurt your career personally? I mean, it's... I'm sure it has. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't dwell on it. Right. You know, it's like you're not a victim. I, I don't. No. I okay. You don't like where I stand. I mean, as I, 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 I remember 
lot more than once people saying, "Oh, but it's so unusual to bump into a, you know, a poet who is uh, who is like a conservative or an anti-communist." And I go, "Well, it's not unusual if you speak to Russian exiles, I don't know, you know, or Romanians or East German exiles, anybody who's fled a communist regime." will be just like me. It's rare for you if you're in Boston or in, or in Santa Monica and in your little aquarium, everybody thinks that they're a communist and they're all like, oh my God, you know, Trump is like the new Hitler. And, <laughs> and, and that's the mantra. Right. Yeah. And they're into this horse. Right. And for them, of course, in that little aquarium, that's unheard of. Mm-hmm. But I come from another reality. I come from the real ocean. You know, in fact, I even have a, a poem about that that, that it, it's called uh, Monsters. And it deals with Godzilla and King Kong and, and how I, I, as a child, having grown up with these horror stories about Cuba and executions and so forth and people, you know, dear to my parents being murdered, you know, I had fled from a real monster. Mm-hmm. For me, it wasn't a cartoon character. I mean, this was real. And for everyone else, like, Look at the monster or fire-breathing monster, or, you know, and and, and that was a a, fr- a frivolization, mm-hmm. a frivolization of of monstrosity, of cruelty, uh, and as long as it's on the it's on the movie screen, we hey we can we can eat popcorn while we're watching you know Godzilla eating people mm-hmm. uh, or, or burning up cities. But I come from a culture that was exterminated, in essence by a dictatorial, brutal, totalitarian regime. At which artists, poets, writers and you, were and, imprisoned. And imprisoned, yeah. but, the, but, the, but then you have the Oliver Stones and, mm-hmm. the, and the Ted Turners and the Garcia Marquez's and the Limitless yeah, the list. Champagne, uh, and the Champagnes <laughs> and, the, and the Noam Chomsky's. Right. And, uh, you know, my God, how much time do we have? I, could, I should put these in alphabetical order. <laughs> Because the list is endless of, of, of mindless ass-kissers who don't even care a hoot about Cuba. Oh, but Cuba has all this, you know, Jimmy Carter's famous, uh, Cuba has superb education and health care. I mean, Jimmy Carter must, you know, must eventually go down in history as one of the biggest f***ing fools that ever lived. But what happens is that they go to Cuba, they pay court, they have their picture taken, they acquire their leftist credentials, and it's all to be marketed here. Oh, look at me. I'm a radical. I'm, a, I'm on the advent, avant-garde. Mm-hmm. I've taken on the role of the progressive revolutionary who's going to change society for the better. And so, therefore, I go there. Have any of them stayed there? Have any of these people gone and lived in Cuba as a Cuban? Mm-hmm. Of course not. Right. And they would commit suicide 24 hours into that adventure... If they, were, if they were compelled to do that, you know, because as long as they can use the, the photo opportunity to advance their careers here as academics, as journalists, as artists, then Cuba is simply an, is, is, a, is, is a tool. A visit to Cuba and posturing as leftists is simply a tool to advance their marketability in, in, a, in a capital system which expects them to endorse that. Right. That's part of what is required on the resume. So it all boils down to artists or radicals and wackos, and yeah, we don't care about that, you know, because they don't really count. 
So, okay, so you're, you think you're a Marxist. Okay, but we love your paintings and we're going to buy them because then we're going to resell them and we're going to make a zillion dollars out of it. And the idea that this person is endorsing or advancing or applauding a system that has killed more people than every other totalitarian system known to man multiplied by 10. You know, Attila Hun is Mother Teresa next to, to, <laughs> to Stalin. Right. right. And that is no exaggeration. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just Stalin alone probably carried off 70 million people. Yeah. All right. So, how could we look at Picasso and Jean Paul Sartre? And countless others who literally defended and applauded that monster, in particular him, and we not be recoil. We don't recoil in heart. I don't mean destroy their works. I don't mean disparage their works. But why don't we apply the same level of condemnation? Because attitudinally, we we think that that's just what artists are supposed to do. They're supposed to advance these kind of monsters and nobody really takes them seriously. Next up, the poem we just mentioned, Monsters. I confess nothing drew me to their comic kind when my ears made natural their allure. The huge ape, circus-bound, yet deeply in impossible love, scaling, then falling in a hail, was neither troubling nor braced with the lightning rod destinies of desire. Nor did the great lizard, fire-eyed crater breath, calmly venturing across a livid metropolis of guns and screams, Bridges failing like cardboard, entice the scroll of fantasy. Now, theory armed, and like a miner seeking to gem a culture's lows, out from the Vulgate dark, I watch the stammering flicks and glossy remakes roll the plastic toys in the tide of my grown hands and understand America as a ship run aground in allegory. Its childhood id was chained and hauled across the sea and tossed among the granite monuments, clutching his blonde trinket. Behold the towering reptile, the adult id, finally breaking the spell of regimen, not to glow in the earned zenith, but to burn in a rage of vices. I know why their aberrance did not speak to me in flight from a breathing monster, and why I refused to forsake the right to Renaissance privately, if that is how it has to be. So you were telling me off recording about one particular incident with, with a young lady who came in. Uh, there was a uh, that was at a at a talk at a museum um, many years ago, and it was a talk that I was um, giving on Cuban exile artists, 
And at the end of it, I always open it up to questions and answers. And especially back then, that that has changed somewhat in recent years. But back then, it was I'm talking about the '80s. Uh, it was very much, you know, still a very uh, you know impassioned leftist defense of anything associated with the communist regime in Cuba. So, first person up, invariably, you know, the. the Grab the mic in the in the you know in the in the auditorium was this um, um, this woman who really didn't ask a question. Yeah, she asked a question, but then went on to give a speech. Uh, why didn't you mention any of the Cuban artists within Cuba? Because Cuba is a wonderful place, and it gives free health care and education to its citizens, something we don't do. And uh, they defend the their artists, and they support their artists, and they she went on and on. And then many people in the auditorium, maybe about two, three hundred people there, broke into an applause after her impassioned, um, you know, tirade. She sat down and waited for my response. And I said, "Well, first of all, I've been invited here to give a talk on, on Cuban artists who live outside of Cuba. They are in exile." So it would make no sense for me to spend enormous amounts of time talking about the Cuban artists within Cuba. I'm sure there are some very worthy ones and others which are just basically regime hacks. Mm -hmm. But be that as it may, that wasn't the focus of my talk. But since all of you seem to be applauding, or many of you seem to be applauding her position on the Cuban regime on health care and education, I am here to offer anybody who is, you know, so inclined, a promise here in public. I will pay for your children's health care and education under the condition that I also have the same rights that the Cuban government has over the people that they so-called educate. That is, for the rest of your children's lives, they will be required to, they cannot work until, unless I, I send them someplace to work. I negotiate their salaries, and I decide how much of that salary they get to keep. They cannot protest it. They cannot flee from that obligation for the rest of their lives. If I garner... $5,000 a month for their services, I will give them $50 a month, maybe. And they will have to figure out how to live on that. And if they flee or they try to get away from that contractual obligation, I will have the right to have goons come and beat them up and drag them back to their post. How many of you are willing to accept my, uh, my terms? And of course, nobody. And I said, I don't understand you. 20 seconds ago you were applauding this position and that's what happens in Cuba I don't know what you think happens in Cuba oh and P.S. while you're in school while you're getting that free education you will be shipped off to the fields to cut sugar cane to help pay for your free education right. which you will also have to pay for the rest of your life as a slave to, my, to me nobody wants to give me their children and they were all like, sort of petrified and of course the flamboyant, leftist, progressive, smug, self-important imbecile who, you know, thought she had pulled a fast one on me, sat in her chair, frozen, and we never heard from her again. So I was very disappointed. That I, I, I thought I'd walk away with at least a couple of hundred people who would be at my beck and call for the rest of their lives. You're still waiting for them? I'm still waiting for the first person to sign in. Yeah. <laughs> you see, leftists are not interested in facts. That's the first thing. You can't argue them with facts. You must put them in the situation of the person who is enduring that ideology in the real world. And that maybe at least makes them think that, oh, oh, shit.
have a no moment, uh -huh. you know. But even that won't be enough. Before we met, we talked on the phone. You mentioned that you were a collector. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking like three or four pieces or maybe 20 at the most. My goodness, there's art stuffed everywhere. There's even art in the restroom. This uh, is only about a sixth of the collection. Wow. And you lend to, to museums and galleries. Yeah, I donate and I, yeah. you know, yeah. So talk about where you first got that bug to collect a little bit and then talk about where it's led you, like some of the people that you've met, some of the stories, some, some of the lengths that you've went to get certain pieces. As I headed out to Latin America, part of me was trying to recover a sense of a of a living Latin American culture that was modern that could help me understand Cuba. Because as I got more and more into Latin American and Cuban culture, I realized this, this is a, a world that needs, of course, its own explanation, somewhat different from the ones that I'm getting here. But I also wanted that sense of, of another modern, another take on the modern, which is what I found in Latin America. Now, as I'm going and traveling and meeting artists and, and picking up art and bringing it here, and, and you know, I took countless trips to all these countries, you wind up collecting. I mean, it's not, collecting is not something you suddenly decide, you know, it's the kind of thing that comes looking for you. It's like being an art critic or, or a poet or something, you know. It's not like, you know, kids go, oh, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a, you know, a business person or I want to be a doctor. You know, nobody gets up and says, hey, Dad, I'm going to be an art collector and, uh, and a poet. You know? Do you remember the first piece that you got, the one that you're like, I got to buy that, I, I got to get it? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, I remember being in Miharis' house and loving his work and buying buying this little watercolor and this little oil on paper and you know back then you know they cost you know 50 bucks 100 bucks which was a lot of money for me mm -hmm. you know because i was a student you know and i was and then i started picking up things like that you know and that, that's what they were sold for they didn't you know that was their price and of course today let's say 300 bucks would be i don't know uh like two thousand bucks or something or a thousand five hundred i don't know about the, about the but that, it was money i mean when i had 300 bucks to spend on art, that's a lot of savings to right. go into that. And I just bought things I loved, things I, I felt that, you know, that really would talk to me. And there are very few things I bought that have, over the years, like, ugh, you know. And then I swapped those out to other, for other things. I, I don't sell art. I've sold a few, very few things, maybe four or five over the years. And I've regretted that because money disappears. But I have swapped art with other collectors you know that I have that I'm less interested in now and that I want something they have that, that I have done on occasion but mostly I've bought these things directly from the artists a few things in galleries and a few things in auctions but mostly from the artist directly and uh, so most of these things have, there's a personal connection with the artist many of whom have died you know in, in the process I'm buying from new artists all the time. This is sort of like, a, I think of it as like a kind of Noah's Ark of my mind. I also think of it as a memory theater. I don't know if you're familiar with memory theaters, very few people are. Memory theaters were these things that were built in the Renaissance and up until about 1600. Kings, powerful people would have, there were artists who actually made memory theaters. Memory, uh, they were the size of a room, 
and they were miniature theaters. Hmm. But except that the chairs were filled with symbols of all the human knowledge that was available at that time in every field. And you could, if you were an educated person and you, you could have read everything, you could have in your mind everything that has ever been written that's worthwhile mm -hmm. from the ancients, from your contemporaries and so forth. And so they, they would walk out. The idea was that you would come into your, into your memory theater alone and you could, uh, by scanning the room, it would activate everything that you've read in your mind. And there are no extant memory theaters. They're all destroyed, disappeared. So in a way, you've created one in your house? This is a memory theater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a fabulous book by Francis Yates. That one right down there, called The Art of Memory. Oh, you must read that book. It's okay. from the 60s. It's one of my favorite books ever. And she explores, you know, how the concept of memory is connected to space, to structures like theaters and like other kind of structures. And, she, and she's the most brilliant historian of that ever. She was a British historian, obviously dead. I mean, that book is like, if, if there's a fire, that's one of the things I grab under my wing. And run, run <laughs> Barbas, beards. Mm -hmm. It's based on uh, Titian's The Allegory of Age Governed by Prudence. It's a, it's a three-face portrait. Titian, his son, and his nephew, grandnephew, I guess, at that point, looking in different directions with three beasts, like, you know, in Dante's Inferno, uh, there's a wolf, there's a, a lion, and a leopard. I forget what they're like. But it deals with this particular American girlfriend I had many years prior, who obviously didn't speak Spanish, and so there's a famous Spanish saying, God gives beards to those who have no jaws, which typically means that God misplaces talents, you know, <laughs> somebody wins a lotto, and, but that person's an idiot and blows it, you know, instead of giving it to me, for instance, so I would know what to do with all that past right. fortune, you know, what's God up to? He gives beards to those who have no jaws, but, but she wanted to turn that phrase around into something else, so that's what the sonnet's okay. about. The Spanish often say, God gives beards to those who have no jaws. To mean he plays dice or tenders clues, hides his fumbles from the common view, or quietly mocks what he will not cure, or makes of randomness a rule of laws whose point and purpose we cannot receive, yet take for constancy. My girlfriend insists it could also signify compensation. For then, this woman without Spanish persists. The beard would cover up the lack of chin. And in the sway of life, there'd be a counting at the wheel. Jabber, jabber, I say to her. No native to need. You are indeed a foreigner. Was there 
ever a piece of art that you were aware of that existed, like you had read about it or had seen it, and you were trying to pursue it? No, no. I would, I would, I would, I would meet artists, and I would, you know, they if if their work came alive for me, I would write about them. I would try to buy something. Mm-hmm. I would, and then I would also write poems about art. I've written a lot of poetry. It's called ekphrastic poetry. In other words, from a Greek word ek out of phrasing out of something so you go from one art form into another a painting that influence that inspires a poem uh, uh, a symphony that is inspired by uh, a play uh, uh, whatever you know mm-hmm. a painting that inspired by architecture that's all that is called ekphrasis mm-hmm. so obviously like half the poems and more more than half the poems in my last book are ekphrastic i've also been writing uh, finished now a whole manuscript of poems based on the Edo period Japanese art, mostly prints, but also paintings. Mm-hmm. So I spent like two, three years writing that, and sort of immersed myself. And now I'm going to the Tang dynasty and mm-hmm. sinking into that big time. And so I'm like, you know, constantly going into these things, as well as, of course, the living artists that I have known, and Olga de Amaral of... Colombia, Luisa Richter of uh, Venezuela, German-born artist, uh, Arnaldo Roche Ravel of Puerto Rico, good friend of mine, many years, died last year, uh, 62, great loss. Uh, um, and like that, countless others, you know. But I can certainly take you through a few of these paintings here in this room and tell you how they how they've interacted with my mind and what, what drew me to them. Okay, well, let's start with this one here. Okay, that's a recent acquisition. It's a, a part of a series by Rigoberto Rosales Halil, a, uh, a Cuban artist who's been here, I don't know, maybe four or five, maybe more, like six years. They're like these retablos, these uh, little theaters. Mm-hmm. The retablo is, uh, is a votive religious box, if you will, that opens up like a little shrine. Except these are not, you know, obviously religious, but he's very much influenced by that kind of popular culture of Latin America, and and but these are very, you know, modern things. And what you have here is some of his initial reactions to coming to America. I mean, he comes from Cuba, he lived in Cienfuegos, uh, and then suddenly coming to America, seeing these big tall buildings and the skyscrapers, and you know, the, all the aspects of modern life, and then. But he also, you know, then you have these people that are looking at little details with telescopes, you know. Right. <laughs> they're looking at the ground yeah. with binoculars and telescopes. Right, and here's a cluster of them. Here's talk about a dynamic form. Here's a cluster of people. Uh, it's almost like a cloud hovering over this car mm-hmm. behind them a city. I mean, it's, it's theatrical to the extreme. Uh, haunting, beautiful, uh, enigmatic work that... There's a whole strain in Latin American art that deals with theatrical spaces. So the, the, the paintings and the sculptures are thought of as, it's like an implied narrative, but it's not obviously clear. Sometimes it is in Dio Rivera, you know, the great history of Mexico, you know, and then you can follow it, you know, in murals. Enrique Castro Cid was an artist who went to New York in the 60s, in the early 60s as a young man, and became pretty much like a 
a wunderkind of the New York art world. He was doing robotic art at a time when you know nobody was really doing that. I'm talking about mid '60s, and he was like 20 something. He even wound up with an article in Time magazine because he was like you know hmm. people were fascinated by this, and he rose very quickly up into recognition in that world. But he was after the the robotic art. He started to get more and more into the physics, into the to the dynamics of space. So he was intrigued uh, uh, about the whole idea of flat space. Modernism is all about flatness. See, this is not a modern, this is modern, but modernism is more like that. You know, what do we do in absolutely flat space? Mm -hmm. We get rid of the third dimension and now we have to, you know, rearrange the space and compose it in a certain way, right? Not obedient to the rules of perspective, but to the rules of the flat bi-dimensional space. Cubism and all the other isms that came afterward emerged from that. But I think it was interested in how do we make that flat space not just obedient to flatness but to multiple dimensions of space? Because by now, of course, we had, you know, Einstein and we had relativity and we had black holes and we had all this stuff. And, and so he starts coming up with a very complex mathematical scheme to use complex variables to uh, transform bi-dimensional space into 16 dimensions of space. So, a simple question, and most art, great art starts with a simple question, how do we get past uh, the, 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 the flat, flatness is really very Euclidean. By that I mean that every, every aspect of space, think of the tiles on the floor. Every tile is like every other tile. If you, you walk across this floor, at the moment that you're on that floor, you are in a 12 by 12 inch space, whatever. It's like walking across a ruler, let's say. Mm -hmm. And every aspect of that space is the same. However, if you're looking at this tile floor, obviously the lines are tapering off and eventually they're gonna disappear into a vanishing point. And Euclid talked about that as a, as a, as a very interesting problem in space. But how do we integrate the idea of, a, of an Einsteinian universe into this bi-dimensional space where every tile is not like every other tile? If we were walking through a subatomic world, right? right? And then we would be warped and changed completely with every movement, with every part. The space would be tugging at us and, and yanking us this way and that. You couldn't walk across the tile floor in, the, in an Einsteinian universe. Right. So, but, but how do you do that in art? Do you just simply distort? No, he wanted a, uh, an art that was not about willful or whimsical distortion, like most modern art is, right? Picasso, you know, does all these weird stuff, twists the human figure around, but none of that is mathematical. All of that is just simply the imagination, composing, flattening, stretching, doing what it has to do to make the painting work, not what it's referring to. But I think I became fascinated with this idea that we could put infinity, the infinite, the rules of an infinite universe into a painting. So he starts working with mathematicians at MIT and other universities hmm. to come up with ways of digitizing all, digitizing electromagnetic currents, for instance. Mm -hmm. Coming up with a more precise mathematical formula and computer programs, more importantly, that can, that through the use of these equations, can transform that space. So here we have 
the figure of this woman in a room with a, a large painting of a bromeliad, let's say, behind her. And there are, I don't know how many black holes in that room. And all of those distortions are mathematically determined. They're not determined by, and he wants to make one arm bigger than the other, mm -hmm. or one leg fatter, and her head smaller, or whatever, or the, the, the walls are looping into each other. All of that is determined by the placement of these, of these different points of singularity in that space. So the, so the way you would describe it is like in a traditional painting, the infinite starts here, out, in every direction, That's, off the canvas. Okay. But in his paintings, the infinite starts here and goes in. Within the canvas. Yes. Yeah. So literally, she is a cosmic figure. She's in this universe of, trans of transformations. The same forces that shape galaxies and, and, and warp space are in that painting. So how do you reconcile these multiple dimensions, 15, 14, 16 dimensions of space in a, on a flat canvas? For that, you need special computer programs. Hmm. And so he would punch in all of these. This is when the computers were the size of rooms. Mm -hmm. And I mean big rooms. And he had powerful collectors who would pay $1,000 an hour for the use of these rooms. Wow. At Mount Sinai, for instance, the computer room. Uh, a friend of his, uh, Dr. Sackner, who, who financed this. He, and I spent more than one day there with him, working on the, in these computers, and he would be, you know, punching in numbers and seeing how the image would be transformed. And then finally, when he would find an image that he liked, that's when he, because there was an aesthetic also, and then he would stop. He would use that, he would project it on a canvas, and then as you will, as you notice, the, the, the canvas is kind of warped because all these different grids, all these different models of space have to be crunched together. That's where the where it gets interesting. Uh -huh. You know, because it, part of her is in this world, in the Euclidean world, where the where the tiles are all the same. Space is our space. But other parts of her are in other dimensions of space. So they're going through these distortions and there are all many different levels of space in there. How do you reconcile that to then transform a bi-dimensional canvas? That is what the modernist experiment is all about, but not whimsically, mathematically, you know. So did he like give the mathematicians like a stick man, or stick woman in this case, and they kind of mathematically showed how what would happen if there was black holes. Except that we're talking about 16 or more different dimensions. Right, right. You have to come up with it, with this image, you've got to put, the, the, the computer has to come up with about 60,000 computations. Wow. He's a brilliant man. He's the most brilliant person I've ever met in my life. Yeah. He was our Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> I'm serious. He will someday be known as that. These artists, many different artists, are fascinated with the infinite and how to express it in a work of art. That wouldn't have occurred to anybody in the New York school. They were trying to get away from philosophy and ideas and just come up with, I don't know what. But this, suddenly the Latin Americans, think of Borges, the poet. Think of Octavio Paz, the poet. The infinite is like a palpable aspect of Latin American, modern Latin American life. And here's one of these expressions. Any piece of this stand, can stand in for all of this. Right. It's called a synecdoche. That's a trope. The trope, the three major tropes I study in, in, in I approach Latin American art: metaphor, metonymy, which we talked about, and then there's the third one is synecdoche. Synecdoche is when a piece stands in for the whole. 
right? A room can be synecdochic. All stories are synecdochic. When we read a story, we look at a play or see a movie, it's not interesting because it's like the family, you know, bickering or fighting over something. They're, they're synecdoche. They are a symbol of an entire era. Anna Karenina is, is interesting because it's typical of women in the 19th century, and so we reflect through her story all these other predicaments. Madame Bovary, all theater synecdochic, as well as metonymic. Microcosms. Right. Right? So the Latin American artists were just singing the infinite. So here's an excellent example. This is a, this is the whole this thing can be extended. This pattern, which isn't really a pattern, it can be extended in every direction. It just happens to be this size. <laughs> right. But that is in itself so intriguing about the Latin American visual imagination and how different it was from the American, let's say the North American visual imagination. When I spoke to North American artists about these things, they were looking at me like, what the hell is he talking about? I mean, what's he on? You know, the Van Gogh effect. <laughs> and so, so and I, this is what Latin American, one of the things that drives Latin American art is these ideas, and one of them is the infinite. some verses about artists. Titled Bruges, the city in Belgium, which also, of course, is, means witches, right? It's a beautiful medieval city, and pretty much preserved it. So it's, it's a villanelle. I don't know if you're familiar with the form. It's a uh, medieval French form that, that uses the first and third line as the subsequent last lines of the next four stanzas, and it's all very tightly rhymed. I've gotten very much into rhyme forms in the last mm -hmm. few years. Most of this is sonnets. Right. But this is a villanelle. Who can boast a fuller life than the artist? A stranger feast of disparate plates. One more replete, even in emptiness. The farmer clocks by the merry of his harvest. The lunar faces of his worth in crates. Who can boast a fuller life than the artist? Alone he births a beauty none can resist that cannot shape the clay of their earthly fates, yet makes them feel replete, even in emptiness. The soldier, altering life with sword, is the bravest groom of glory with which alone he mates. Who can boast a fuller life than the artist whose labor long after him wins the truest victories. His living work no funeral awaits, burns obscure, none more replete in emptiness. Yet, to gather pearls from punishment he's cursed, to magic loneliness, to mock happiness's estate. Why does he boast a full life, this artist? who'd rather be replete than hoard emptiness.
We close out our conversation with a final poem inspired by a piece of Haitian art Pau Josa has hanging where he works. Very cinematic, right? This is a, oh, a, yeah. a wedding reception. You see the, the groom and the bride. And there's a whole novel here almost. He seems older. Yeah. So, so and then this woman looks like she's been jilted, right? <laughs> so she's like, and all the gossipers. Very nicely dressed. And, you know, obviously, there's, you know, air conditioning and television sets and food, lots right. of food and people coming in. And this one is me, not knowing quite where to stand. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also, of course, uh, Afro-Caribbean religious elements, you know, here and there. Uh-huh. Wedding, Port-au-Prince. After the painting by Wilson Bigot. In the painting by Bigot, a wall has dropped to let us watch the feast of drink and gossip. Strokes of guests bubble up the window as dancers scroll the horizon of the painted living room. The scene makes us hear the celebrant trot and gaggle and taste the scandent mounds of food. Next door, the groom and bride sit neatly on their bed and take refreshments from a gallant girl. In this deaf scene, touch unfurls the numb dress hung and the quilted spread. At center stage, the jilted turns her face to find a world within this broken place. If you'd like to hear more from our guest today, be sure to listen to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 189, where Professor Paujosa talks specifically about Cuban artists and his own family's experience in political exile. Or if you'd like to learn more about the Cuban-American experience and current issues, episode 202 is a pretty good one, with attorney Marcel Felipe, who talks about his work with the American Museum of the Cuban Diaspora. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week.